This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. So tonight, Norman, you've got some stories on a new area of research in oncology and on a strange connection that's been identified in so-called good cholesterol levels. But first, I wanted to ask you about the uh, the virus on everyone's lips at the moment, monkeypox. Well, I hope it's not on their lips, but um, <laughs> we were... Well, actually, too much information, I think. So monkeypox is rising rapidly. I mean, at low levels, given that we've got a world population of 9 billion people, two weeks ago it was at 250, and now it's at nearly 800 in 27 countries around the world, and that excludes the uh, endemic cases that are occurring in West and Central Africa. I think uh, Democratic Republic of Congo has had 12 or 1,300 cases since the beginning of the year. So there's good news here, which is that there have been no deaths reported. This is World Health Organization data, but there are missed cases. So some of the cases, there are no obvious links. They can't find where they got the monkeypox from, which means that they're missing cases because obviously there is a chain of infection. That's worrying. There'll be more cases than they're reporting. That's worrying. And what some analysts are saying is that the worry here is that this becomes a significant public health problem. Maybe not with a lot of deaths, but as a public health problem, because the risk is that if you don't control it, it'll become endemic in these countries around the world and where it's appearing. So far in Australia, I think there's only three, well, at least three reported to WHO, um, but in other countries, there's more, particularly the UK, and it could spread. It is controllable, but if it's not controlled soon, I mean, this line is going straight up and you could get quite significant numbers of cases quite soon, as we know well. It's not a pandemic virus in the way that COVID's a pandemic virus, though, is it? No, because it's less contagious and you tend to, uh, it, basically, it's, le- it's far less contagious, although it is a respiratory virus. Mm. Now, you've been uh, looking on about young people and tobacco use. Yeah, so I've got a story about that that I'll give to you in a moment. But when I was doing the research for that, I came across another smoking-related story that really caught my eye. And it's about how the stigma associated with smoking can actually make people's health even worse. So, of course, we know that smoking can increase your risk of diseases like heart disease, stroke, diabetes, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD. But researchers at Monash Uni surveyed people around their experience of care from a GP and whether they got the support that they'd hoped to get when they went to that GP and found that people with smoking-related diseases, especially COPD, said that they experienced stigma at the GP, feeling judged, like they got a reduced level of service or made to feel ashamed because there's this sort of sense that these diseases are self-inflicted. So what that meant was that a lot of those people just wouldn't go and see the GP or they would just delay seeing one. And of course, if you're delaying care when you've got a, when you've got a problem, especially something as complicated and severe as uh, some of these smoking-related diseases, they could get even sicker. And what really struck me was that this was the case even for people who'd already quit smoking. Really? So if they had a smoking-related disease and they'd already quit, they were still delaying going to the GP because they were worried that they were going to get kind of 
told that it was their fault when they went there. Yeah, and I'll bet you anything you like that some of these people are ending up in emergency departments at the moment with uh, exacerbations of their chronic disease and it's because they haven't been going to the GP because they're worried about what the GP thinks about them. That is not good news. Right, and so for the people who had good experiences, they were less likely to avoid going. So I guess the, the moral of the story is just as simple as this, is to just uh, avoid making already sick people sicker by ensuring that they have good experiences when they go to healthcare settings, which, of course, is easier said than done. And as you say, you've got another story on tobacco smoking and young people with mental health issues later on the show. That's right. But before we get to that, so we have the Australian Medical Association, but our sister in New Zealand has folded. Yeah, they voted for liquidation. Can you imagine if the Australian Medical Association folded? Um, such a prominent organisation in medical politics. Some people, some politicians might welcome that. But, <laughs> but really, um, essentially, the AMA at its core is the doctors' union, but they do other things as well. And uh, sometimes I've been a critic of it and sometimes they've done really good things, particularly in Aboriginal health and other areas. However, the New Zealand Medical Association, yep, has voted to essentially end itself. It's extraordinary. And the story seems to be that they are not financially viable anymore. They've got a you know, a lot of expenses. I think they've got a building that they, they can't afford to run. And their membership has declined. Um, and to the point where it's just not viable. So it hasn't been the force in New Zealand that the AMA has been here. Really, I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting development. And the um, uh, we were asking around, well, who's going to represent doctors in in, uh, in New Zealand? And in fact, that's already been fragmented for a while. Mm-hmm. By the way, this issue of doctors not being members anymore. There's always been a question of just the true membership of the Australian Medical Association, just the extent to which doctors are still members of it. So, um, and whether or not ex-members are still counted, there's just a little bit of wooliness around just how many members the um, the Australian Medical Association has got, but it's obviously got more money. It's um, certainly got a, a nice building in Canberra and nice buildings in each of the states. So good luck to them. Hope that doesn't happen to them. Well, is it a warning for the Australian or other, other countries' medical associations? I, I think that one of the issues that we heard from people when we did the research on the story is that uh, they painted themselves into too conservative a corner and probably too conservative for the medical profession in New Zealand and therefore lost a bit of relevance. And I think the AMA, interestingly, the AMA has moved. It's uh, a lot of its entrenched positions over the years, particularly on fee-for-service and other things, and the social side of medicine have loosened over the years so that they do become more relevant to the younger generation and indeed to medical politics in Australia. Mm, Got to be bold and agile, I guess. You do. Now, let's go on to that oncology story we were talking about a moment ago, because I've got a new concept for you, Tegan. Mm. It's called time toxicity, and it's being used by a group of cancer specialists in Canada. The idea is that cancer specialists tend to focus on the physical side effects of cancer treatment, but for patients, time wasted in cancer treatment might be equally toxic. One of the researchers leading the push to think more about this is Professor Christopher Booth, an oncologist at Queen's University in Ontario. We actually had him on the health report recently, so it was good to have him back. It's lovely to be back. Thanks for having me. The way that we conceptualize this is if survival is long and or the treatment offers very large benefits, then the time spent pursuing treatment, you know, waiting in the chemotherapy unit, going for a CT scan, going to the emergency room because of vomiting after treatment, that 
time proportionally might be quite small. And for most patients, it might be an easy trade-off decision. In other words, you're, you're willing to invest in it for the upside. Correct. But where we think time toxicity is most relevant is when life is short. So when someone has perhaps less than a year to live, but also it tends to be at that point in the cancer journey that our treatments have the smallest benefits. And so we think the concept of time toxicity is most relevant in those settings. Has anybody done the equation that if that's your life expectancy, you're going to spend three weeks of that time or a month of that time in treatment? Has anybody done that equation? We haven't actually seen that yet in oncology. Our colleagues in surgery and geriatrics and critical care have been doing this in a slightly different way, but for a while, but in oncology, no one has actually started doing this until recently. So for example, the clinical scenario where it will occasionally come up, I can still remember um, a farmer uh, from a small town, a very pragmatic man with advanced pancreas cancer. I was having a discussion with him and I shared with him the fact that his diagnosis was terminal and that his life expectancy was probably in the range of six to 12 months. And I said, you know, we have chemotherapy that we could use and you would come in every two weeks for an infusion. And I said that the chemotherapy on average will help people live for an extra two or three months. And I can still remember him looking at me saying, well, if it gets me an extra two or three months of life, is it going to just be traded off by two or three months waiting around in your clinic or in the chemotherapy unit? And so that was really a very pragmatic description of what time toxicity is. Is this just another way of discussing futile care and the failure of oncologists to recognize that people should be in palliative care rather than still in active curative care? I think it's part of the same package. And so I, I kind of conceptualize this as what I call the value crisis in cancer care, where we do a lot of things. I mean, take a step back. We do a lot of things that really, really help patients. But increasingly, there's a push towards very toxic and expensive therapies at the end of life that have very small benefits. And that's, I think, where time toxicity is highly relevant. And I think we failed as a community because we just have not measured it. And so what we've been writing about in, in the publications we've recently produced is recognizing that time toxicity is important and it matters to patients. And it probably should be part of our usual consent discussion about whether someone would want to go on palliative chemotherapy. The problem is we don't have a lot of data to describe what time toxicity is. We can explain to the patient, you'll be in the treatment unit every two weeks for four hours, but we don't really have data to say, well, how many extra visits to the emergency room, how many extra CT scans, blood draws, et cetera. And so we've proposed that going forward, oncology randomized trials, which measure many, many things, should also measure the number of days that a patient spends seeking health care. When you talk about clinical trials, it's not necessarily something that the drug companies will think about when they're developing a new drug because they're focused on survival and cure, which is fair enough. When I've given lectures on this topic to patient support groups and advocacy groups, this really, really resonates with patients. They want to know how they're going to spend their time, especially when time is short. And so what we've proposed, especially amongst the academic cooperative trials groups, and there's several in Australia and quite a few in North America, is that this should be a standard measure that we report. And so we proposed classifying each day in the cancer journey as either a home day or a healthcare system contact day, recognizing it's a pragmatic measure. Any day with physical contact with the health system will be counted as a healthcare system day. Any day without that will be counted as a home day. Now we've tried to keep it pragmatic. So a visit to the hospital to have a blood test might only be an hour or two of the patient's time. And that's obviously very different than a 12 hour visit to the emergency room. But at the same time, it still is part of a patient's day and their caregiver's day. So to keep it pragmatic, 
each of those days would be counted as a healthcare system day. And of course, the counterfactual is home days. And so we think that clinical trials going forward could actually measure these things. And when we've done some modeling, Norman, to get back to one of your earlier questions, we've been able to show that there are some cancer treatments which offer fairly small improvements in overall survival. And when we've counted up the number of home days versus healthcare system days, it becomes almost a toss-up that almost every added day of life is traded off by a day with contact with the healthcare system. And I guess the last point I would just make on that concept is that we're not proposing that you know we as oncologists or, or the investigators here can tell a patient how they allocate their time. Every patient's going to have unique values and preferences, but the way we think of it is that we need to generate the data and then share that information with patients so they can be empowered to make treatment decisions that is best suited to their life goals. Could this concept change what are called, I don't want to get too jargony here, but models of care? In other words, if you've got a traipse into the hospital from the outer metropolitan area to a major hospital in the centre of the city, having flying teams, if you like, that go out to people's homes or more shared care, people tend to use general practitioners more for surveillance and screening rather than active treatment. That We force changes in the way we deliver cancer care. Absolutely. And I think one of the silver linings of the COVID pandemic is it's kind of forced the medical system to adopt, more fully adopt virtual care, which was really, really not widely used, at least in North America. And so virtual care allows patients to remain at home for medical care that can be safely and feasibly delivered by video conference or telephone. And I agree with you, Norman, I think, you know, empowering community health services to have nurses visiting the patient's home or care delivered closer to home by a general practitioner or a district hospital could go a long way to reduce what we call time toxicity. And I should just point out that in Townsville in northern Queensland, they've pioneered this. In fact, you've got country towns which have nurses and general practitioners who've been trained to deliver it with the support of an oncologist um, out of Townsville General Hospital. Look, Chris, that's been fascinating. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Norman. Um, well, that's got some synergy with that story you had last week on cancer treatment and quality of life. Yeah, actually, Chris was an author on that paper as well, so there you go. I'm oh, just looking at a regular just a <laughs> tart on the health report. Professor Chris Booth is a medical oncologist at Queen's University in Toronto, Ontario, and you're with the health report on RN. Over the last few decades, smoking rates have plummeted in Australia. But new research by Origin and Headspace has shown tobacco use is much higher than average in a particularly vulnerable group young people with mental health issues. And what's more, it's even higher in young people with more severe types of mental illness, like bipolar disorder or psychosis. So we know that smoking brings with it health risks. It's also expensive and it's difficult to give up, which can compound issues for people who are already struggling with mental illness. So to find out what's driving this trend and what we can do about it, I spoke to researcher Sue Cotton from Origin earlier. Physical health outcomes are considerably worse in individuals who have had a history of mental illness. And one of the areas that contributes to poor physical health outcomes is substance use. We know adults with mental illness are more likely to be heavy users of tobacco than individuals in the general population. And we wanted to do an in-depth study of tobacco use in young people who are presenting to five headspace services in Australia. Physical health outcomes, we're talking about chronic disease or other forms of disease that sort of seem to be correlated with mental illness as well. 
Correct. There's often early mortality in individuals with mental illness. They die earlier from disorders such as cardiovascular and respiratory diseases and cancer. Particularly, these types of diseases have been linked to a greater use of tobacco. Why tobacco? It's not like a psychedelic drug. It's not mood altering. What's the link between tobacco and mental health? In particular, in young people and even in adults with mental illness, they might start smoking because of peer pressure, but also it may help them deal with their problems and the sense of anxiety, depression and stress. But it actually really doesn't help. Tobacco use can cause changes in the brain, which can then lead to poorer long-term outcomes. Why young people in this study? At Origin and Headspace, we're focused on early intervention. So helping people earlier to address mental health issues as well as substance use, to reduce the impacts of both mental illness and substance use over the longer term. Sometimes young people can start using tobacco to help deal with their anxiety, depression and stress. And peers who are also smoking is another contributing factor for a young person to take up smoking. Not being engaged in study or not having activities such as going to work can also lead to higher rates of tobacco use. Also trying to deal with symptoms can all lead to a young person taking up tobacco. So you're sort of talking about things that are missing from someone's life there. So does that feed into what kind of interventions might work? One of the important things is screening young people for substance use and tobacco use. Also educating young people about their options when they are using tobacco and what sort of strategies can be used to help manage symptoms of depression and anxiety if they're going to reduce their smoking. Were there particular mental illnesses that you looked at in this study? A lot of young people presenting to Headspace services are presenting with common mental illnesses such as depression and anxiety. Often these disorders occur together. We also found that sometimes individuals with bipolar disorder or other psychotic disorder like schizophrenia, that they were perhaps more likely to be using tobacco. And again, it may be symptom related and trying to help alleviate the symptoms associated with mental illness. So with tobacco, maybe I'm just in a bubble, but it felt like tobacco use was sort of on the decline. And when we're thinking about young people and smoking, vaping seems to be the thing. Did you look at vaping in this study? Vaping is actually growing in the community and particularly in young people. That's not necessarily those who had mental illness. This is one area of research that needs to be examined, the use of vaping in young people with mental illness. And that's a noticeable gap at this stage. The other factor I wanted to ask about is whether you looked at demographics like socioeconomic status and what effect that might have on, A, someone's predisposition to smoke tobacco, but also their likelihood of having mental health issues. Two of the services that we recruited young people from were from regional services. And what we found, particularly in young adults, young people 18 and older, coming from a regional area and a lower socioeconomic status were associated with tobacco use. That related to not having a job, again, not having meaningful activity and perhaps more peer interactions, which is including substance use and tobacco use. Is the answer here helping people to quit or is the answer here to help people with their mental health or is it both? 
I think it's both. We know that distresses and mental health issues are increasing in young people. I think this is the opportunity also to educate around tobacco use and how that can impact on mental health outcomes, but also looking at strategies that young people may find helpful to reduce their smoking and tobacco use, including other substance use, is also particularly important. But then also managing the mental health symptoms is also important. You mentioned just now tobacco use impacting on mental health. Is that something you can expand on a bit? Some of the past literature has said that tobacco use can actually cause chemical changes in the brain and there's potentially a bi-directional relationship. Even though you may start using tobacco to alleviate symptoms, it may then result in escalation of symptoms. It's often difficult to work out what comes first. Educating young people in schools around mental health, where to get support, educating them about tobacco use and how that could potentially lead to poorer outcomes over the longer term, including physical health. It's going to be a really important area of work to continue to develop. So, Norman, to put some numbers around this, the study looked at people presenting to Headspace centres and found that nearly a quarter of 18 to 25-year-olds were smoking daily and for younger teens it was 7%. To compare that to the general population, daily smokers, less than 1 in 10 young adults and only 1% of teens who are under 18. Big hike. Mm, So Professor Sue Cotton is Head of Health Services and Outcomes Research at Origin and a Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for Youth Mental Health at the University of Melbourne. Well, Tegan, we've got a bit of a mea culpa on the show this week. Whenever we talk about cholesterol, we describe low-density lipoprotein, LDL, as the bad form, which is part of the cause of atherosclerosis, and high-density lipoprotein, HDL, as the form which takes cholesterol out of the artery. In general, you want your LDL to be low as possible and your LDL-HDL to be on the high side, but how high? An important new study suggests there's a limit to how high you want your HDL to be. The good guy may turn into the bad one. One of the authors is Arshad Kuyumi, who is Professor of Cardiology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you. This has been a bit of a mystery in a sense, that when you look at populations as a whole, your high-density lipoproteins be called the good form of cholesterol because it's supposed to remove cholesterol from the blood vessels. And yet whenever they develop a new HDL treatment, people seem to get worse. Exactly. There has been this paradox that agents that are associated with increasing HDL levels have never been associated with improvement in mortality in the same proportion as you would expect. So this paradox has always been a bit puzzling. And it becomes clearer now that we have some more data looking at very high HDL levels and what the impact of that has been. So in this study, you looked at a very large number of people who have naturally high HDL levels. We are looking at people who have evidence of cardiovascular disease already. So this is a somewhat of a high-risk population. And we have looked at this in two separate populations. And in both of these cohorts, we have been able to examine the impact of HDL levels on long-term outcomes. And what did you find? One was the expected finding, which is that very low HDL levels were associated with increased mortality risk. But what was somewhat unexpected was that at very high levels, it was also associated with increased risk of cardiovascular events. And when I say very high levels, we looked at above 80 milligrams per deciliter. And in Australian terms, that's over two millimoles per litre, when in fact the recommendation in Australia is having it around about one or just a little bit over one. Did you compare it to LDL? 
what we did was to adjust for LDL levels so that we didn't let that LDL level interfere with the interpretation of what was happening at different HDL levels. Why is this happening? So one thing that we cannot completely ignore is that this population also has higher alcohol intake on average. And some of the increased HDL level might be accounted for this. There are other studies that have speculated that non-cardiovascular diseases such as infection rates, some autoimmune conditions, etc., may be more common in this population. Any difference between men and women? Yeah, there were some differences in men and women. And this is important to understand, I think, both for the high-risk population, the one that we are talking about, the coronary disease, but we have a, another study where we looked at people without coronary disease, the general population, which shows that there is a difference between men and women in terms of the proportion who would have very high levels of HDL. So proportionately, more women have high HDL levels or very high HDL levels than men. The high risk in men seems to appear around the level of 80 and above. In women, it probably appears at a little higher level. Are there any therapeutic interventions which will reduce HDL? <laughs> that's a good question. I suppose you can start um, smoking the, and stop taking exercise, but that's not going to help you. Reducing alcohol intake is probably the only thing. There's an epidemiological concept called attributable fraction. Again, sorry for the jargon, but it's that of all people who die of a heart attack or of all people who get a heart attack, how much can you attribute to a very high HDL? Have you worked that out? That's a good question. The best way to think about it is that it's not just a little thing. It's about 2% of the coronary disease population. But in the general population, 2% of men have HDL above 80. That's millions and millions of people. And almost 10 to 12% of women have levels that high. It's also worth knowing that we often used to say to women, oh, your HDL is 90. You know, you have really, you're protected. And actually, that level is not protective. I mean, the other troubling thing about this, Arshad, is that people are encouraged to go to the general practitioner and have something called an absolute risk score. In other words, you don't just get treated mm -hmm. for your blood pressure if your blood pressure is a little bit up. It's what your total chances are of having a heart attack or a stroke yes. in the next five or 10 years. Right. And most risk right. equations have HDL. I mean, does this undermine yes. the risk equations? Perhaps we should revisit those equations. I think they're generally correct because the low side is where they are acting, right? They, if you have low HDL levels, it gives you a higher risk and so on. But at the high end, they are not taking into account the fact that if you have an HDL of 90 or whatever, you don't get a higher mark. You treat it as if you have normal HDL levels. If doing that would tweak the equations a little bit and it'll help this extraordinarily high risk cohort of maybe two to five percent of men and women who fall into that category and give them an adequate risk measure, which may be misinterpreted at this point because there has been no recognition. Arshad, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Arshad Kuyumi is Professor of Cardiology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Next week, Sarah Seji returns to the Health Report with a special feature on cancer which runs in families, the latest research and what you can do about it. Sarah's feature includes the story of one particular family with a child who experienced two tumours in her short life. She was rushed to hospital by an ambulance and in a couple of days after that, we were advised that she had an inoperable brain tumour. Treatment was only available to extend life rather than save life, which was incredibly hard for us as parents to hear. Michelle Brady knew something more was going on. 
it didn't make sense that her young daughter could have two different cancers in such a short time. And deep down, I know, even at 14, Addie knew the seriousness of cancer because at nine years old, she had experienced it. She'd seen children that she'd been on the ward with lose their lives to cancer. So she knew. And she knew that a brain tumour was really, really bad. And during the time before we did lose her, she asked me probably twice, am I going to die, mom?" And it was probably the toughest questions I've ever had to answer. But I think deep down, Addie knew where it was going. And especially the last few months of Addie's life, the cancer really became quite brutal. It moved her spine. So it ended up taking her mobility. It then started impacting her sight. Trying to get on top of the pain for Addie was very, very hard. And it was brutal. I saw a change in her I wouldn't say personality, the personality was always there and it was always trying to break through and shine through, but it became a tough fight for her. That's a special feature on familial cancer next week on The Health Report. So that's all for this week from me. And me. See you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.